0: Starts now.
1: Hi, I'm Scott Tucci,
2: And I'm Brian Lambert. And we are the Sales Enablement Insiders. Our podcast is dedicated to asking the big questions you should be asking if you want to be successful in sales enablement. Specifically, we rethink, reframe, and revisit specific sales enablement principles, topics, and trends. And today, we're going to reframe. Specifically, we're going to reframe the approach to enabling headcount versus enabling productivity. In other words, saying it again, enabling to headcount versus enabling to productivity. And I know that may seem a bit intellectual, so
1: Scott, why don't you get us centered here with a story? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I don't know if this story is really gonna help with the contrast between enabling to headcount or enabling to productivity, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But in, in terms of um, You know how to think about this stuff what i'd like to do is go back to 1869 and in 1869 george roebling had this uh, idea of building a suspension bridge across the east river it's now known as the brooklyn bridge and it was the first steel wire suspension bridge of its kind and in this day, this uh, gilded age, this uh, era of almost anything is possible, building, you know, trains cr- cross uh, cross country, telegraph, all of these explosion of innovations and in, in the um, uh, huge explosion of innovation and value during this uh, peak of the Industrial Revolution. Everybody was doing something new and they went out to build this um, this Brooklyn Bridge. Now, unfortunately, during the construction of this bridge they ran into unforeseen problems and specifically when they were laying down the base at the bottom of the hudson river uh their their first group of workers started to get sick and at that point in time they couldn't figure out what it was so they just assumed it was the drinking habits at this point in time of the irish is, these are all true stories so i'm not uh uh, I'm not being racist. These guys were super racist <laughs> at, at the time. So because they kept getting sick and, and stalling production, what did they do? They went and got another group of people, Germans. They, um, that didn't work out. So they got another batch of people, uh, recently freed slaves. Uh, that didn't work out. They got sick too. They said, hey, you know, uh, the, the Chinese did a great job of building out, uh, building out the railways. Let's bring them in. They brought them in. It didn't work either. So throwing all of this effort, all of this energy time and time again, they just couldn't figure out what happened, what was happening, what was going on. And really what, what, uh, what they ended up doing is doing some medical analysis to figure out what's going on. I mean, we've got to get this fixed so that we can get this bridge built. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot on the line. We said we're going to build the first steel suspension bridge in the world and Daggum it, we need to figure it out. Sure enough, what's that? Daggum That's right. <laughs> so uh, th- those are my 1869 words. Yeah, I like it. Um, Transported. Exactly. So really what happened? What, what, what was going on? What was preventing all of these people perpetually to get sick? Well, it turns out what was happening is the people were being submerged to such a depth in the hudson river that they were getting decompression sickness what we now know as the bends and anybody who's seen any any movie with scuba diving knows about the bends it's it's ubiquitous everywhere well they didn't know what it was because they've never had an experience where they had to put people under that uh under the water at that depth before to where they could run into decompression sickness so the, you know The moral of the story here is they thought it was one problem they threw bodies in activity over and over and over again, getting more and more people sick and many many dying uh, from from this condition when in reality, there was a much simpler approach that was safe that uh, wouldn 't hurt anybody and to build these decompression tanks you know along the way so that 's my framing story there you go and so, you know,
2: this is interesting because in that story, you know, like you said, throwing bodies at it, one, that's a bit obviously in, inhumane, so that that's obviously a part of the challenge. But it's also pretty expensive to constantly um, do that. And, you know, you're, you're, you basically at some point, it sounds like in that construction process, realize that doing the same old thing over and over again that isn't changing anything. And now, okay at some point there's a tipping point to say, maybe there's a root cause, right? So is that your point in telling that story with regard to um, sales enablement, Scott? What are, you, what are you saying?
1: Yes, so the reason that I'm, uh, the reason I'm sharing that framing story for where we are today, and the uh, topic that we're gonna get into further, is point number one, This when, when did that story take place? It took place during the indu- an industrial revolution when we were resetting and uh, trying incredibly new, bold things. Where are we today? We're doing the same thing. We're, we're actually in the midst of a digital transformation. We're, we're going through the same kind of big changes that were going on in the 1860s, 1860s to 1890s, uh, as the same changes they went through today. So that's, um, that's one contrast. The so second- stay,
2: Yeah, so, so stay in there real quick, so- if, if, I don't like that i don't like that uh, level of uh life and death uh change here scott <laughs> so
1: what would you say to that i want to keep doing what i've always done on Well uh you you could do that uh or you could look at um when adjusted for inflation every single one of the robber barons are are more valuable than any of the super rich people that we know of today every single one of them uh so the amount of explosive wealth and the explosive standard of living and the huge amount of lifting people out of poverty, all of the benefits that happened, all were results of these massive changes. And really it comes back to, you could look at it as the future is bleak, AKA the you know, industrial revolution, that's bad. It's sort of the uh, Frankenstein view We're all going to work in nasty factories and get dirty, right? Or um, we still people in New York still revere that uh, Brooklyn Bridge that was started in 1869. It's it's that contrast. It's it's really depends on on how you look at it. Where would we be uh, as Americans, or where would we be uh, as Western cultures without railroads, without electricity, Um, some of the basic things that we take for without gas, without Combustion engines. So that's, that's where we are today. Where would we be without the internet? Where would we be without mobile phones? Where would we right. be without uh, what we're being able to do right now, record a podcast? This podcast would not be um, available. It's a. It's a Just think product. of all the millions of people listening right now.
2: Yeah, millions, right. <laughs> um, all right. So what's uh, your second point? So I, I, I wanted to. Yeah.
1: So the on. second point is when you go off into that brave new world, sometimes the way that you think about solving problems isn't you're going to run into unforeseen challenges and sometimes you need to take a step back instead of just throwing activity and bodies at it maybe you need to take a step back and rethink it yeah i like
2: that and uh, that's an important analog for today um because when you take that story and you look at sales teams um you know in the last 15 years 10 years some would even say five years uh, organizations, sales leaders, executives have been attempting to throw salespeople at their customer experience strategies, or throw money at their digital strategies uh, to, to look for skilled workers. I, I don't, I don't have the number in front of me, but I, I read, you know, a couple of weeks ago that there are still tens of thousands of, of jobs left unfilled that are con- considered new economy jobs, you know, di- in digital. Um, transformational type of jobs. So there, there, there is a gap in, in the ability to uh, execute on these and when you throw bodies at it, um, the mm-hmm. symptoms um, are gonna rear, rear their head. And I think when you frame out the, the, uh, the beginning of this podcast when I said this idea of enabling to headcount versus enabling to productivity uh, is what you're saying here through the opening story, Scott, that, that we've been throwing uh, salespeople as headcount to uh to the strategy
1: yes there's some you know there's a macro trend that's actually disturbing about our overall economy and for the past 10 years we've actually seen a decline not an increase a decline in worker productivity so why is that and then you can factor in Let's, let's investigate the, you know, the, the overall work, the workforce and all that other stuff that uh, sounds like a political discussion. But when you zoom in and start asking the question, how productive are our sales forces today? Are they more productive than they were 10 years ago? And there's a lot of ways that we can answer it. Uh, what I wanted to do is really talk about one specific company for which I have lots and lots and lots of data. I think we could shed. Uh, I think we could shed light on that instead of going macro or instead of going back into history. We not talk about one specific company.
2: Yeah, let's do that. So we've got as a proxy for this idea of um, tackling this issue, uh, one specific organization. So maybe you know we'll start with. Tell us a little bit about the sales team, the organization, and then um, what what transposed, and then I assume. Through this discussion uh, that we're going to be able to provide our listeners with some action items as well. And I'll come up with three. You come up with three and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to provide a path forward to tackle this same type of discussion in our own organizations. Yes. Right? So let's do that. And then, so let, tell us, frame it out a little bit for us around this one specific organization and their sales
1: team. Okay. So let's, let's go through the case study. So first, what is the company? The, the company, uh, I'm going to take the names out to protect the, protect the innocent, but it's a $300 million uh, company that is moving from selling a variety of uh, security products um, in, a, you know, in, in hardware form to moving to providing cloud-based uh, subscription services. So that's, that's basically what they were. So uh, is that, so? let's do our first check. Is that indicative of a,
2: a shift in the, the revolution, right, from industrial to knowledge work? Is that a massive
1: shift? Well, it is a, it's a massive shift in terms of saying we're selling physical products, old economy, to new economy, digital economy, to a subscription-based, you know, cloud-based, cloud-based business model. Yep. A lot of companies are going through this shift. Some have gone through it earlier rather than later. So, you know, everybody goes through it uh, through it differently. But it's a common factor. And it's something that, uh, oh, yeah, duh, of course we need to make it. But um, when you've sold a physical thing, and now you're selling, moving to selling a subscription. There's a lot of changes associated with it. yeah,
2: not only the business strategy, but the business model and how revenues recognize the way teams you know have to work together, the actual solutions themselves, and how and
1: obviously, in what we're going to get to here, how those how those are sold. Yes, how sellers actually behave and what they think they're selling and to whom they think they they are and to whom they are actually selling to. So the situation was, so the the year before I was involved, the, the company had done some analysis, and this is analysis that pretty much every, every company does and i 'm oversimplifying it it 's way more uh, way more detailed than that. but like most companies, in order to come up with a compensation plan, you build a low end and a high end in terms of target, and you set a threshold level of your bookings per rep target and the the reason that you do that is you do that to calculate different, um, you know, to t- obviously to define the role of, of a seller, but you also do it uh, to set the compensation thresholds. And what they recognized was in their, in, in their opinion, too many of their reps were below 80% threshold. So what is 80% threshold? In this case, it's 80% a hidden quota. Okay. So far too few reps. I, uh, how many were not, hitting, were not hitting the 80% threshold is not important. What's important, but it was a lot. It was more than, um, more than 60%. What's more important was how they were looking at it. So in order to improve the performance of the average rep, you know, to get more of those reps up to the 80% threshold, which they were comfortable with, what did they do? Well, they looked at two things. Number one was the turnover and the overall turnover of the sales force with 25%. And that checks with about industry averages or, or whatnot. So eh, it's not, it's not a problem. And they didn't investigate that. Uh, then what they did is they did the, the, you know, sort of the classic, let's survey the sellers and see what they need. Let's talk to sales managers and see what they need. They came up with a whole boatload of activities that, that, that they needed to do and they spent uh, over 500,000 out of pocket and then a whole bunch of other uh, energy and resource uh, to build that set of activities. They rolled it out in the kickoff and you know what happened throughout that year? Well, throughout that year, not one single new rep hit the 80% target threshold. The, 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 you might as well have not spent that money because literally nothing changed, nothing. So obviously, uh, we're, we're the, this is where I enter the story and the conversation is, well, what more activities should we prescribe to the sellers? And my point was, all right, look, if you did all that work, there should be a relationship between activity and performance, right? So we should probably figure out why that performance didn't happen. In other words, let's not throw more bodies at, you know, in the caissons. Let's actually investigate what happened. So, you know, that takes some doing, but um, by framing it out this way, I was able to, you know, persuade them to, you know, go through with our engagement. And what we did is said, let's do a... Baseline, I call it a baseline analysis and simply put, what we were going to do is we were going to uh, put, in, we're going to examine first, we're going to categorize sellers into tiers of performance. And by performance, what we mean is their overall total bookings, not, um, not revenue per rep, but by, but by bookings per individual. So, of course, you know, we had some HR rules and, you know, that we had to follow to make sure it was blind and not, and not that. And the, I think the biggest problem that we ran into, Brian, is this company was so comfortable uh, tracking sales performance by quota and by product that we actually had to do a lot of um, um, data reengineering, we'll call it, to actually get out the contract value. And part of the difficulty through this exercise was guys, the, the, I only care about the level of activity the seller does in order to get a contract. Because the contract is ultimately what all this effort is for. And this, the customer chooses to put in that contract what the
2: terms are. So this is uh, one of those things, right? Sales is simple uh and then you like to say you know simple is hard yep and i like to say hard is doable (laughs) but you have to you have to do the work um this is an interesting so if i if i at the risk and i'm not i'm just going to give this an an example here to breathe some life into it i had a call with like a sales enablement intern uh two weeks ago and and she was saying hey um you know when when people go online and they you know you know want to attend our events they put in their information, and we can't even cross-reference that into our accounts, um, and that's, that's an example of, of, a, of a disconnect in, in, from lead gen into you know, an existing account view, um, and th- those dis- types of disconnects are all over the place, and what you're bringing up here is an interesting you know, potential disconnect that you're tackling on the front end, which is sales drives, bookings, and there's activities related to bookings, so what type of questions did you get on that, and why was that hard? Who, who is that hard for?
1: Well, it was hard for the sales operations team because the sales operations team has worked out uh, how to report to the CFO, and the CFO was interested in product sales because the company is interested in driving product sales, not services sales. So why, you know, since we, that's all we care about, why would you look at things differently? And I said, I don't know. I, I just want to figure out what effort is required to sell a contract. Who knows? Maybe some salespeople are selling services along with the products because they think the selling those services helps sell those products. So if they if you took that away, maybe they'd have a harder time selling it. I don't know. I just know that there's a level of effort required to get a contract. And I want to start with measuring that, which means I'd like to have this kind of data, please. And that you know, back and forth, that doesn't back and cross forth. reference into products at all. Right. So basically, what it ended up having to do is, I took, I said, give me the, you know, I went and got went and got a different data source for the for that, and I uh, keyed those up together. I keyed the terms up together, and I built uh, I built my own data set <laughs> to be able to piece part. Uh, the different product codes of which they track the business by to, in order to get at an estimated contract value. So that was, mm-hmm. uh, that was a lot of work just to get something that I think is pretty simple. Um, and the reasoning behind it is also simple. And it's one of the reasons why the VP uh, of sales and operations signed off on, <laughs> on this engagement. So that was the first thing. So once you get that data and it's really clean and you know what it is and you can match it to different uh, sales channels and of course you eliminate revenue from you know different sources so you're comparing apples to apples and people agree yeah and people agree uh, now that now that you have clean data you can do some really simple powerful analysis and here's what we found uh, we took the sellers and uh, grouped them into um, quintiles. So think about that as 20, you know, 20% chunks. I'm a huge fan of the 80, 20 rule. And we also took, once we got that data and we got permission to find who the, who the actual top reps were, we were able to cross reference, um, their dollar values versus, you know, customer spend. And here's what we found. We found that, uh, the top 20% of their reps, were generating $4.4 million. Uh, their capacity rep, the, the, the average, the, the target at 100% is 1 million. So the 80% target of obviously $800,000. So these people were 4X or 440%, 440% higher performers than, than the baseline. These, uh, these reps represented 74% of the company's bookings uh no one knew that and i took that list of those top performers and i had uh different people different leaders react to it like w- without saying that these were top performers oh those guys complain all the time are you, are you finding that they're they're not performing and none of these <laughs> none of these None of these leaders, Brian, none of these people who averaged 4.4 4 million, none of them came up as top performers because they were maybe 101 to 90% of their quotas. Cuz these guys have been stuffed with massive quotas and they're but, complaining a lot. So, yeah. But, right, but, so oh, like, by the
2: way, they, they had the bends, but anyway, right. we'll come right. back to that, I'm sure. But so just,
1: just get your job done. Yeah. Shut uh, up and get, sell and get your number. Get your number. You, you, you know, we've set your you know, we set your quotas at what we set your quotas are, but we're gonna compare everybody to whether they're hitting their quota rather than what their total bookings are.
2: But this is an, this is an interesting point. So I'm gonna play devil's advocate as I sometimes do on these. Well, gee whiz, Scott, you're not telling us anything we don't already know. 80-20 is applicable. We know that 20% of our sellers do all this. So, you know, not a big shock. And oh, by the, you know, oh, by the way, they, they complain a lot. So what's your point?
1: Well, okay, if, if you know this already, have you done the analysis? Uh, for it, a few companies actually have done this analysis because I, I ran into some of this at this company. Well, of course, you know, our 20%, blah, blah. But they, they thought 20% performers were the people who met quota. Across the board, across. Right, all, so he, let, let's, let's make sure we're clear on this. There's a big difference between quota and actual bookings. There's a huge difference. So this Brian, is again one I'm of those I'm going sales to assign plans. you a quota based on your history. And so I'm going to say, guess what? Way to go for hitting 200% of your quota. So you, instead of your quota was a million, you did two million, great job. Now that I know you can do two million, I'm gonna set that as your baseline. I'm gonna give you a little bit of a raise. So congratulations. Um, and then now we've reset your, your quota. And that's how it works. Now, right. it, maybe it's not that extreme, right? But that's how it works. That's and how it so happened what- to
2: me. Congratulations on having an awesome year. Here's another 10%, 20% for next year
1: exactly and then maybe a three percent raise yeah right so yeah. The, the company makes lots of money off of the top performers and then what happens then is because everybody's focused on hitting the number the okay. number is based on the quota so mm-hmm. we we concentrate more on whether you're at quota than what your actual bookings are relative to, to other people which and
2: in, in, in what you're saying is about is, is that a better sign of productivity.
1: Well, what I'm saying is at the end of the day, if you're trying to drive bookings, you should know where your bookings are coming from. And an individual sales manager knows, you know, who to lean on and who not to lean on if you're looking at the aggregate. Uh, But when you're overly focused on quote obtainment as, as your driving force, you tend to lose sight of the human beings you know, those few human beings who've been there all along, just constantly performing. And how many, how many reps did that equate to? So, uh, well, there's about 16 reps. So Six. we got, so, we, uh, you know, about the time of the analysis, here's the other point of the analysis that I want to share um, before we get into, you know, bringing all these people together. So what we, what we found was, um, you know, in terms of the analysis, we looked at the number of contracts these, uh, each, of the, each of the sellers did, what's the value of those contracts, sort of the types of contracts, were they, you know, renewals, upsells, different classes, we, we came up with different classes across sell, um, the effort per contract, like, was this getting this really, really, really hard? Or was it easy? Uh, so we got, uh, you know, we got some of that through, some, you know, some interviews and the like. So we had a very rich uh, viewpoint of, you know, the effort and value uh, and context of these different contracts. The second thing that we looked at was I couldn't resist uh, examining the turnover question. Now that I have a viewpoint, by the way, in terms of frame of reference, the top tier was 4.4 million tier. Number two, you know, the, the tier, you know, tier two performers, uh, 1.76 1.76 million, tier three, you know, the middle of the curve, uh, 80, you know, 0.86 million. Correct. Or, you know, the, you know, the, the, the quartile, you know, quintile number four, 20, 0.27 million. That's 0.27 and tier five, the, the bottom 20%, their average contribution was 0.03 million. Literally 0.03 per rep per rep. Yep. 0.03 million. (laughs) That is, um, I mean, you know what
2: we need, we need training for that 0.03.
1: Well, uh, you know what, what, um, (laughs) there are a lot of quick, quick prescriptions. So the other analysis that we did before we say, let's, but let's not get into prescriptions yet. Let's keep making sure we understand what our situation is. The other thing that we did is we looked at the twenty percent, twenty five percent turnover. So let's you know, let's say out of who's, who's the we looking at this again? So me, who's around me, the table? Me, me, me. I I looked at this. Okay. I am giving this uh, this readout to the to to my clients, and the we that this is this readout is for is for the CEO, the CFO, the head of sales operations, the head of sales enablement, and the VP of. Uh, the VP of Sales and the VP of Product—all all these our groups. That's helpful. Thanks. You're welcome. So the other thing that uh, you know we talked through—I uh, did the analysis for—I shared with them was I was curious about the 25% turnover that you weren't looking into, but of that 25% turnover, you know, those um, you know 50 plus uh, 50 plus people who were who turned over from from the year before. Well, what was interesting is. Eighty percent of those turnover reps were were either tier one or tier two performers. So, if you average, nice. if you average the tier one and tier uh, tier two performer into we call it a you know called it a productive rep you know in, in finger quotes, for every one of those you lost, you needed to replace you know based on what their average new hire uh, to to perform was in that year ten. New reps, 10 new reps. Yeah.
2: and I think this is another one of those, well, no kidding, you know, the consultants tell us this all the time, and to your point, but have you done the analysis for your organization? Yeah. So these, these are universal truths, and, you know, I've seen it in many, a marketing message and webinar about the cost of losing top performers, and it's like, well, duh but have you done the analysis? And then is everybody on the same page? Because again, it's a well-duh for very smart people here, a bunch of VPs, but they're not wanting to look at the turnover.
1: I I think that the point there is, it's not about whether you understand it or not. It's whether or not that's been brought to the attention of all the decision makers. I think one of the key problems that uh, folks in our space do is we, we hear something on a webinar and we assume that knowledge is ubiquitous everywhere, and then we can, just, we can just uh, declare it. Right. It so, is. Oh yeah, we
2: need to model our top. Here's here's one. Right. So using buzzword bingo here, um, we need to model our top performers because we got to focus on the eighty twenty, and we got to keep those uh, that are high performers productive. So there you go, Scott. That's
1: the answer. Okay. That's so all you're doing. Maybe that that might be what I'm doing. Uh, I think the, the 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 question would be how you do it and are you getting buy-in and are you looking at all the right data? And I'm telling you, it be this analysis. I've done this type of analysis for a long time. It's never been harder because companies collect so much data and people are so insistent that other data gets factored in into the analysis. So what it does is divert the focus uh, uh, of the attention.
2: And there's a lack of a, you know, like I've been doing here a little bit of this. Well, let's go fix it right now and not really understand what, what all these symptoms equal, you know, which is the bends, right? right? What's the root cause here? And let's make sure we understand it in a totality uh, instead of jump into
1: prescription. The, the other point of this analysis is um, every one of the people, every one of the executives involved in this company were really smart people. They didn't do this analysis. Uh, lots of companies don't actually perform the analysis. And that's why you get... So many different massive programs to, you know, one size fits all the Salesforce. So, um, you know, it's it's pretty easy to say, you know, oh, we've done that, we do this, do that. But all you have to do is ask yourself, are you driving out a lot of activities? And, you know, a real simple, you know, litmus test test of reality is go on the sales floor. Uh, try to consume all the information and all the training and actually make calls the next day based on everything that you're providing, being, pro- be, being provided, whether it's from your organization or other organizations. And if you can't uh, digest all that material, guess what? You're, you're not doing the baseline analysis. You're just not. You know, um, you can say all these things and that, you know, this, or, you know, that it doesn't matter whether you know it or not, what matters is whether or not you do the analysis, you get the buy-in and it changes the behavior and the decisions of leaders. That's why my favorite
2: phrase, and it's, it is somewhat confrontational, but after this discussion, you know, I feel it's warranted. It's the, you know, well, show me, mm-hmm. well, yeah, this is easy. And yeah, this, everybody does it. Okay. Well, that's cool. Show me the last, show me the analysis. Well, uh, we don't have one. Okay, well, let's do one because it's easy, right? It's the old "show me" uh, question, and and people don't like it at first because they want to dismiss the work because it's common knowledge. In eighty twenty, okay, show me the eighty twenty analysis.
1: Well, I, maybe I mean I think I think there are um, I, I think where we're at is we're so stretched and we have um, executives that come in with their new their new flavor of thing, their new prescription, that we feel obligated to drive that forward. I also think another, another trend is um, an avoidance of fundamentals. And I think in times of great stress and great um, complexity, the best thing that you can do is go back to fundamentals. And uh, it's sort of like uh, the Warren Buffett school of investing, right? He's very much about invest uh, investing in fundamentals. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm of the same school. I'm very old fashioned that way. And you can look at the basic fundamentals and if they're not, if they're not happening, no matter what degree of sophistication you put in, it ain't going to work because your fundamentals aren't there. Coming back to this, this um, issue, let's talk about like the, uh, Oh heck moment that happened at this executive team uh, doing this doing this analysis. Right. So the first one is, oh my gosh, if we lose these performers. And now because you've made it clear, you know, we're not reporting on quota. Because keep in mind, executives don't necessarily know the connection points, but they just want things simple. Show me bookings. Show me impact quota is a different thing altogether. So it's this aberration that's um, that's different. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying to executive leaders, it adds another level of abstraction. It's like on the radar, it's one of those ghost blips. You're not quite sure what it is. Right, yeah. so yeah. Um, when you just strip all that away and say, where's our money coming from? And doing that kind of accounting to recognize that, um, you're taking an average of four point you know the 4.1 million and the 1.76 you know contributors averaging it together and that's where 80 percent of your attrition's happening you got to do something about
2: it yeah because i'm thinking okay if we don't know this um i'm gonna put myself in that organization and try to have some you know uh try, try to think about this and what what the downstream impact of not knowing this is you know uh, if I'm a if I'm a hot, high performer in that top quintile, I'm going to say things like because he said they were complaining, I'm probably going to say stuff like this is getting harder. Um, I don't understand why I got to go to this training. This isn't for me. By the way, I've been asking for this other stuff that nobody's given me. I'm having to build stuff. i you know these the, these quote unquote complaints. Yep. So that's probably what's going to happen. And then also the you know the the flip side of that is, you know, and you and I have talked a lot about this. You end up with a lowest common denominator approach, one size fits all, that um, you know, believe you're going mi- to move the middle of the bell shaped curve up. Yeah. that's quite a gap.
1: Yes and, and you know we, uh, this middle of the curve of, you know we've heard a lot of that uh, that talk around sales coaching We'll, we'll attack uh, not attack or, or discuss sales coaching later. I'm talking about simply the decisions that are made you know, in the benefit of, of the overall sales force. So we, t- we took this sample and we took the top 20%, actually less than, th- than the top 20%, but we found um, 16 reps out of the pool of the top 1%, just 16. And those 16 reps uh, represented you know, 70% is so that, you know, you can, you can do the math here about how much, uh, <laughs> they, they generated a lion's share of this company's bookings. And first of all, no one in management recognized these people as top performers. That's number one. Uh, number two is I'd interviewed a few and I knew, you um, know, in, in my s- sample set, um, many were actively looking and the company's sales kickoff meeting was coming up and I, I made a case, why don't we take these, um, this group of top performers and create our own separate track firm at the sales kickoff meeting? And let's call it our Top Gun you know, program, like, just like the movie. And we'll make it exclusive, only these people are invited and they just won't participate in all the general sessions. And that was really hard. That was a really hard sell to sell to the CEO um like but they need to know all these things i said why do they need to know all these things these guys are performing better than what you expect i bet my guess is we're going to learn more from them than they can learn in our general session
2: yeah so if i put my sales enablement hat on here (laughs) i'm going to jump into that one now so we've got this external consultant telling our ceo we're going to run a top gun program and our CEO is not exactly convinced, and I assume you're going to convince him. But now, crap, I got to execute on that, right? Um, now it's going to be a set aside, a separate thing. And you know, there's a bunch of uh, challenges in, in wrestling with something like that because everything you said makes total sense. But now, a conference within a conference, expectations. Now we're going to probably have a bunch of executives in there. I don't know exactly what to build if I'm a L and D person because in the past I'm I'm doing the Bell-shaped curve stuff. So now I'm out on a limb, right? And this is kind of the nature of uh, tackling these these uh, root cause issues, and that's the point of tackling the root cause issues. Because if you didn't, you would be doing what you had done all, all you know before. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. So I just wanted to recognize that and say, you know, that's okay, and there is a way to do that stuff. But but somebody has to do that for the for the good of the reps involved, you know. Yeah. And and I think that's what you did here, right? Yeah, so what what, what we said
1: is it just laid out, look, here's what we're gonna do. Um, We're going to take them for a day. The value that they will have is that they don't participate in, in in the gen pop thing and just not participating in that and getting to talk to and meet their peers, you know, a peer level networking thing. That in upon itself is gonna be valuable. But what we're going to do is we're going to help them learn from each other. So I'll facilitate, you know, a day long meeting. And I do lots of facilitated meetings with lots of executives. And we're just going to, you know, bring it down there, down there. And we're going to have, we're going to have two objectives. Objective number one is to, you know, give each of these sellers a voice, but also talk, let them share with each other stories about how they do things. Uh, because they know better than each other, so when do they ever get an opportunity to learn from each other? The second thing that we 're going to do is because of the the technique that I use to facilitate i 'll be able to give you insights into specifically what per, what of the activities that you 're doing uh, are working or not working, and also what it is that they 're doing to sell so I can give you uh, you know a readout uh, to, to help. Help you guys better understand these top performers, um, and you know, of course, the answer is well, we already know. I already know what they do, and, and I said, "Well, great." Then you know, you'll be able to have a readout uh, to to validate to validate that. But at least with that validated readout, you guys can use it to inform your decision making moving forward. It's like, okay, that 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 sounds good. That sounds good. So the setup was actually easy for the the, the sales enablement people, Brian. All we needed to do was create a different room. And they asked, you know, what do we need? I said, all we need is a flip chart and, and sticky sticky notes. That's it. And how we set up the agenda was there, there's, two, you know, two parts to the day. So the first half of the day was open-ended questions. And there's a reason behind all this. There's, there's scientific and um, you know, mm-hmm. discovery you know, type, type reasons behind it. But really the goal is uh, what you want to do is you want to get them talking. So you want to ask as many open-ended questions as possible because we don't w- I don't want myself to be putting words in their mouths. I want to hear how they describe the situation. I'm trying to get from them uh, the description of what's the poison in the room. You know, there are canaries in a coal mine, if you will. How do we, how do we, how do we unpack it? So the first part of the day, and I always do this and actually every sales team loves this. The first part of the day is I have each individual go around the room and I ask the, I asked three questions. The first question is, what do you sell? And I said, what do you mean? You know, you would think that we should be able in our sales organizations be able to clearly articulate what it is that we're selling. What do you sell? I'm telling you, the top reps struggle answering that question. Mm -hmm. Um, And they either think out loud or say, well, you know what I mean. And of course, the other reps go, yeah, yeah, we know what you mean. But -hmm. it really comes down to um, either they're selling themselves, aka as a problem solver, uh, or they're solving problems. Uh, But All of it is in service of a customer. Right, that's why there's six, well, uh, you know, not to
2: steal your thunder, but that's why, because I've run this, that's the same questions and I ask what do you sell and there's those that are the product pushers that sell the product and they rattle off the features and functions and talk, you know, about the product and and the history
1: of the company, et cetera. Those folks are not in the room here. Correct, so the next question, the first one is what do you sell who do you sell to and then i you know of course everybody wants more context people are very uncomfortable with having the wrong answer it's like this isn't about having the right or wrong answer i want to know from you what you think and um basically in this case uh the answer was why sell to anybody and everybody I said, well, help me understand that more. I can't go to your CEO and say they're selling to everybody, right? You're not selling to the entire phone book. Who, who, who are you selling to? And basically what, what, they, what they articulated is because of the business problem that these guys were concentrating on focusing on, which by the way, wasn't in any of the messaging. Uh, it was in some of the product messaging, you know, sort of buried in, their, um, in, in the description of their grid strategy. These sellers were selling sort of the business version of that, but nowhere in between did I have any connection to this. So luckily I'd done my homework. So they were selling this this concept of um, a more holistic view of solving security problems. And unfortunately, there is no one owner of that. So what they have to do is they have to bring security people, and they have to bring networking people together to help them see that they're both at risk by both of them blaming the other group rather than saying, hey, we have have a gap. And then they have to go and find an executive sponsor who's willing to tackle it because in each function, they're not willing to tackle it. That's not my problem. That's not our remit. That's the other group's problem. And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So what these uh, folks need to do when they say sell to everybody, they're talking about mm-hmm. gaining buy-in, creating consensus, getting people to agree, reducing the friction, um, bringing some thoughts on, hey, there are approaches on how to address it, that kind of stuff. That's, that's more what they're, what they're doing. And they have no common vocabulary to describe what it is they're doing. So each of them described it in an experiential way, and every single rep said what they used different words to describe what they were doing but every single rep understood what they were doing because they were referencing real life real life fire experiences that they were running into so the point being there you know of course the company had personas and everything like that they just weren't good enough they weren't detailed enough as specific enough they had to navigate a whole bunch of different stakeholders so this is point number 2 point number 3 is open-ended question, what do you need to do to sell more? And it's open-ended. So we heard a lot of comments around this order entry system that this company had rolled out uh, as part of a price uh, optimization strategy. And what it did is it made doing quotes so complicated for these guys that it would literally take them two days um, to get get a price quote to a client. And uh, the other difficulty that they ran into was every single one of these people included services in terms of their proposals, and their viewpoint was if our if our customers don 't use our products and services they 're not going to buy the next batch from us, and the next batch is way easier to sell than the first one, so we might as well get the get the professional services in. The difficulty is they want to sell combinations of Professional services, strategy services, and training services. But since each one of those people were separate P&Ls, they were competing against each other for that slice of the pie. So what many of these com- many of these sellers were doing were they built their own network <laughs> of of people outside the company to provide those services, which is ridiculous. But that's that's basically what what yeah, these I've guys seen, I've were seen doing that
2: before too. Yeah. And another one is I've seen a whole new uh, shadow function uh, crop up around like uh, solution architecture and, and the, the people don't even have that kind of title, but they can build a, uh, a visualization <laughs> like uh, and it's not sanctioned by the company. And it's like this underground movement to build stuff. I've seen that too. It's crazy.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, so that was the first part of the day is uh, really sort of level set. You know, where are we? And the second part of the day was, hey, for us, just this, this, this group of top performers, let's see if we can't create our own little, I don't wanna call it process. I don't want people to think that I'm replacing a sales process like Challenger, but it's, um, can we create our own little process on how to navigate these kinds of deals? So what we did is we workshopped this together. It was really fun. Everybody was engaged, um, lots of high energy and you know we just sort of built it out together and we said you know so our first question is what problem do we solve and we used a variety of different tools that uh you know brought to bear to you know define the you know define the problem uh by the way the problem that they came up with was very different than the messaging that was coming from marketing uh, because these guys are focused on neither the networking people nor the security people they're focused on this problem that companies don't even see. So that's that was what they were they were doing. And uh, in order to sell that problem, they realize in order for us to be successful, we have to um, salt our clients a little bit and uh, help them in, imagine what's possible for us. Get before getting on out. there, put it on there, a little, let, let it marinate a little bit. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Like, like some... <laughs> Pre-selling ideas before you go hit them with what their real problem is. There's a whole book by cialdini called Presuasion. Yes, uh, it was. It is. A thing. These yeah. are the things that, they, that 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 you know that they're that they're doing. Yeah. And then the next thing is okay. So, what problem do you solve? Then the next question is who gets fired if that problem doesn't get solved? So, what we wanted to do is tease out who the wallet owner is who are, who our, who our target was. And then we mapped out sort of like, um, uh, sort of imagine the wire. If you watched, uh, you know, the wire on, uh, on, um, HBO, it's sort of plotting out sort of the crime syndicate family. And we, you know, we're, we're trying to use terms like that. So it, you know, people are fun and engaged in being creative. And guess what? We plotted out that there are, many, many, many stakeholders. I think we came up with uh, 15 minimum stakeholders that they needed, get, uh, they needed to get buy-in from.
2: Well, you know, well, does Scott. That matches the research, too, that says there's 14.2 people that are involved in a buying decision. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but you, have you done the analysis and have you done the work? And, you know, can you have a conversation with those people? And like I, I like to say is, you know what? Wave your magic wand and put them all around the same conference room table right now and have them all uh, agree to the solution.
1: Well also too, there's a difference between a number, an average number, and then there's a difference between actually listing out specifically who those are. And then also in the case of these are sellers trying to problem solve, it's not just some abstract metric. What it is is how are we going to deal with the friction point between this individual here who sees the world through this lens? And this individual over here that works in networking, whose title, like, how are we gonna deal with the guy over here who's on the security team who has a network security discipline, and then deal with somebody on the networking team who is part of their remit and part of their training, their Cisco training, says Cisco's part of, or says security is part of their remit? How do you handle that?
2: Yeah. And I think okay. that's that's what Gartner means by buyer enablement, but I don't think people are quite tracking to that. Is if you put the 14 people around a table and get them to agree on something, they all each have their own siloed view uh, from their their uh, experience, but also their own perspective and kind of a, a hidden. Um, I would ask you for the 16 people, did they have a skill in bringing those folks together? And- all of them did so this and they
1: didn't realize it and because they don't have any vocabulary so what's really frustrating to them at this point is they know they're not going to be able to talk about these issues outside of those walls they're, they've never been given none of them had ever recognized that other were top performers every one of them said the things that they were doing they thought they were breaking rules and that they were um you know kind of being shady
2: yeah that's i think um uh, to me, it comes, if you're a top performer, and I've checked this with top performers over the last 10 years or so, I said, have you had to come to a point in your, in your career where you had to, to, to basically say, I'm out, I'm, I'm done with this, or I have to do it in spite of my company? And everybody who's stuck around has said, literally, I'm doing it in spite of my company or where I'm at. And they're not, they're not being jerks about it. It's that they, they, they realize that they have to go rogue be successful and that's sad
1: to me <laughs> that sucks right well, it, it's very sad too when you know we're talking about gartner or ceb what happens when challenger gets misapplied so one of the um lone wolf reps are reps that um, many companies want to stomp out yeah well if you mislabel a lone wolf rep because many of these people would be perceived as lone wolves. I got to tell you, none of them had a negative attitude about the company. Right. They were actually so hyper positive about the company. They were frustrated. The company was doing things to get in their way of servicing their customers. Because They want to sell more they know they can. Well, I think that, I think the issue here is, and that, that's sort of a, a mis, misnomer and I'm, I'm not trying to correct you, Brian. I'm sort of trying to deal with this overall opinion uh outside of the sales organization that sales people are coin operated the driving force for these people wasn't at least in this group right every group is different in this group none of them their driving force was to sell more all of them's driving force was to solve problems for their customers They know that if they solve problems for their customers, they're going to be rewarded financially later. Yeah, I love it. The the frustration isn't so much about making money. They all know they can go get another job and make more money or make money. The issue is they believe in this business problem that they're addressing and they want to help their clients, which is why they get so more passionate and emotional. It's not about you're threatening their livelihood with the cash. Guys, we, we, we live to a bigger code here. Our bigger
2: code is in service of our customers. Sometimes, and know, oh, by the way, I've tried and tried the nice guy approach and I'm frustrated. So right. I my shoe on the table, for example. Okay, so let's recap real quick and then you can carry us forward. So question one is what are you selling? Question two, who do you sell to and the who is the, the folks the network? Three, what do you need to do to sell more? Uh, four is uh, what's gonna get people
1: fired? yeah no wow. so that's five uh, so that's that's number five well actually I, I prefer two sets of three right set number one is the first for four let's baseline let's let's understand who we are as as the sales as the top sellers then we get into let's problem solve so question number one of let's problem solve is what's the problem question number two is who gets fired if that problem doesn't get solved And, of course, we can nitpick the words to be, you know, what goal do they have. Like, we're not talking about messaging. We're just trying to find the simplest way to get to the answer quickly.
2: Yeah, and I've used the who gets fired, and it does net it out to those that are accountable, right, which I like because you're going to have to get 15 accountable people to solve this, quote, unquote, problem. they got to own
1: it. Right. you got to figure out who's who's motivated to drive it, and then how can you – empower that. So we gave, and I give this, um, I give that map, you know, that map of the adult wallet owner is, is a term I, you know, I like to use it's popular with, uh, with, with reps. And then um, all of the impacted stakeholders like to call that an agreement network. And what's interesting is there's common patterns about how an agreement network works itself out. And by sharing that with other reps, like, yeah, you know, that, that is going to make our job a lot easier. But even having that conversation, the terms, they just, they're just gonna get way too much pushback inside their companies. So they don't, they don't bother bringing it up and just, you know they didn't even know who to talk to because they didn't even know these guys were top reps. And then, so the last question, so it's, um, what problem do you solve? Who gets fired if they, they solve that problem? And the next question is, how do you help? How do you help them be successful? And that really gets at to what's the message how do we bring um the collection of our capabilities together all all that stuff so you know walking through that this group was you know really energized you know they wanted to keep the ball forward you know uh, moving forward um and what you can do is you can actually start modeling out you can sort of say all right well let's build a pilot uh, project off of this team. So off of this engagement, you can do a pilot project and say, let's keep this, this group working together. Let's help say, based on what you guys put together, are these the terms that you guys used? And if not, what words would you guys use to describe it? So kind of, let's sort of like step number one is how do we codify what we learned? Step number two then is, okay, is this thing that we learned, is this a repeatable process? Like, are we all following the same approach? And then how do we teach the folks in enablement and other folks to teach it to the um, tier two, tier three, tier four uh, reps? How do we bottle it out? And then how do we assign different people to work on that? So those, those, are, those are ways that you can take the lessons learned uh, from those top reps Uh, it's unrealistic to think that you're just going to go take that information, model it out and drive training for everybody because it just doesn't work that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. And the, um, the idea of, um, you know, in this case replicating top performers, um, there, there's a lot to that obviously knowledge, skill, the methods, they're going about it, how they uh, relate their business acumen, this whole, hidden skill which is getting uh, customers buyers at a very variety of different altitude levels to agree because we only really talked about the the 15 people but each of them has direct reports and end users so you know mobilizing um, in one sale that I, I had it was at least you know 40 people Mobilizing 40 people in a direction is a whole other skill set. So that, that, those are things you can't just wave your magic wand and, and train people on. So I totally am tracking there.
1: Well, I, also, too, I would add another thing. Um, keep in mind how disengaged and disenfranchised these top performers feel and how very few of them feel comfortable even bringing up what those issues are. So you as a sales enablement leader, you have two choices. You could say, hey, I'm going to go raise uh, raise these issues up to, to our leadership. Well, you don't have the credibility of the top performers. So your head's going to get bit off. And do you really want to handle that? Or do you want to hire somebody externally to go do that for you? It's very wise to hire uh, an, an expert outsider to handle that friction for you. The second point then is, how are you going to persuade if the sellers themselves are so disenfranchised and so disconnected that they don't want to bring it up, it's not worth the energy? What's in it for you? Why, why, why would you tackle it? And also, how are you going to persuade? Are you going to persuade by citing studies from Gartner or you know, Forrester or you know, serious decisions or, or, or whatnot? Because none of those things mean anything to an executive leader that care about their own data and their own performance.
2: Yeah, and you're not going to be able to persuade with these cliches either. 80-20, nope. modeling our top performers. Nope. You know, th- those, those things are, you know, let's get back to the basics. Because you have to have
1: hard data that's backed by a simple explanation, and then you've got to be able to weather the storm, and you've got to recognize that when you're getting heat, and aggressive pushback actually what's happening is they're going through those leaders are going through a exercise in their head to buy into what your analysis is And if you um you know give in and flinch that you know the first thing is it's it's never real it's never really good to be a internal person bringing these things up and, and not having the answers Second thing is, it's always great to let an outsider take arrows for you. And the third thing is, if they've done it before, they're probably going to have a lot more examples uh, to persuade the leadership than you do. And what you want to be in the position of is doing is get just getting the permission to get the pilot going, or uh, you, you know, and then um, get permission to you know drive it forward. Don't don't try to be the person with the answer. Uh, because every single person at that table has massive amounts of data that, uh, you're probably not thinking of and, um, you know, we'll set you up to get eviscerated and you just don't want to do that. It's not, it's not not fun. I've been there. Not only is it not fun, it's counterproductive to what you want to accomplish in the first place. Yeah. So Scott,
2: we're running out of time, but let's, let's hit our, um, you know, Top three here, right? So each of us go through and um, say, "Here's some takeaways." For me, um, I don't know if I'll have three, but it, it goes all the way back to the beginning. This idea of do your own analysis, right? Um, I think that that's critical. Uh, I've, I've woven that throughout here. These cliches don't necessarily translate into today's activities too well, and there's just too many assumptions that people make. And uh, you know, I I would say try the show me. You know, let's, let's do it and let's look at it together. And then, you know, too, a, a takeaway is this idea of um, building the network internally. We're talking about it with top performers and the, how they have to connect the dots using air quotes in their customer base. But somebody's got to do that inside your own organization to help these top performers out. So while the, the session illuminated the challenge, now the dot connecting has to happen. And um, you need to find folks that are able to tackle that and build it out over time without jumping to the answer because this is a, a root cause challenge, not a symptom that's trying to be tackled, right? So what, what do you have, Scott, for, for some takeaways?
1: Well, I would say, I think this is, um, my takeaways would be um, depending on which camp you're in. Like if you're in the camp that says, nothing I heard here is new, then my feedback to you, my takeaway for that is um, just because it's not new for you doesn't mean it's not new for your CFO or your CEO or even your head of sales. And it's not so much whether it's new, it's connecting the dots and helping them see its impact to their business. I want to provide one story here that was really illuminating. Um, I had a, a, a conversation with a CEO of a four or $500 million company. And he was asking me, you know, what's, what's wrong with his sales performance. The the board of directors is on him to, you know, better manage the sales organization. And I, and he, he was, he actually pulled out this book on being a frontline sales manager that I was reading. And I said, um, you know, Let's call him George, right? You know, George or Pete. It doesn't really matter. John, John. Um, why are you training yourself to be the subordinate of the subordinate of the person who works for you? Why don't you just ask what you want? And sales is very, very simple. At the end of the day, uh, if you don't know who your target audience is. You're going to direct your sellers on the wrong people. So ask questions about who are you selling it to? The second thing is, if you don't get access to those people, nothing matters. So ask questions. Are you getting at bats with the adult wallet owners? Question number three is, how successful are those meetings? Demand uh, insight into how successful those meetings are and what ask what you could do to help make those meetings better. Question number three is, do you have a shared vision of success? The ideas that your company has are all in your company's vocabulary and your words and about your products. Do your customers speak like that? Do they have the the tools to turn your ideas into a project plan? What What are you guys doing to help them do that in order to just enable them to buy from you? And the last one is, you know, how effective are your business cases? And that CEO took eight pages of notes and said, no one's made sales more clear to me. All of, all of the, the, the sellers that I and my team are giving me tons of jargon. I don't understand what they're talking about. So, the, the, the reason I share that with you is if you think you know these things, that's great. Please ask yourself what if my CEO doesn't know these things? How am I going to help them see and how am I going to communicate them? The second feedback item is, if you're not doing these things, um, find a way to work work on messaging on getting permission to do it, because you're going to get a lot of pushback uh, from the people with the data to say that this kind of analysis isn't important. And I think you need to anticipate a lot of that pushback. And um, it's way better to assume that you're going to get a lot of pushback rather um, rather than do it. If you don't do the this, this kind of analysis though, you're gonna run blind and you're constantly gonna be doing activities and you're gonna be in that same kind of loop and you're gonna be in the same pattern where you're selling the sellers out to go work on the caissons and making them sick. And you're a part of, of doing that.
2: Yeah, that's great points. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. And you know, one of the things is that I would want to encourage you with is, if somebody doesn't tackle these uh, issues across this cross-functional view that we've outlined, uh, there's very f- very little chance that anybody will. So you know, while while this this uh, discussion has been a bit intellectual, n- not not academic, but intellectual, you know, somebody's got to do the thinking and the the cross you know pollination, cross-functional dot connecting here. And I think that's the value of sales enablement to me is is having this discussion. This is not uh, hard; it is simple. Uh, the, the challenging part is the the interpersonal piece, and uh, that to me is is. Uh, why sales enablement is important. It's a people profession. And to your point, Scott, not everybody has the same understanding. So great, great advice, great takeaways. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. As always, send us your notes, send us your comments. And really, you know, from from my perspective, keep them coming. I appreciate everybody's uh, engagement around this. You can send a note to engage at insidese.com and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, make sure you've subscribed to our show. If you have an idea for what Scott and Brian can cover in a future podcast or have a story to share, please email them at engage at insidese.com. You can also connect with them online by going to insidese.com, following them on Twitter, or sending them a LinkedIn request.